Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'm very happy today to have Brian Collins on the show. And we'll be talking about a wonderful podcast series that Brian produced about a fellow named Robert Eisler called A Very Square Peg. You may never have heard of Eisler, but you probably should have because he did a remarkable number of things. He knew everybody and lived a a, a truly fascinating life. And Brian has done a wonderful job of chronicling that life in the podcast series. It has nine episodes, and you can find them on the New Books Network right now. If you go to the New Books Network webpage, any New Books Network webpage, you'll see a large icon for it, and you'll be able to subscribe to the series on your favorite podcast aggregator. That would be Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or Spotify or Stitcher or whatever you like. And I encourage you to listen to all nine because they provide together a kind of wonderful intellectual biography of Eisler and uh, his various wanderings and lives and his tri- travails and, and his triumphs. And uh, Brian does a terrific job of, of bringing to light this person who is sort of obscure, but probably shouldn't be uh, obscure. So that, that's enough by way of introduction. Let me say, Brian, welcome to the New Books Network. Thanks, Marshall. Could you tell us First, tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, what you do, and where you teach, and so on and so forth. Well, I'm at the uh, I'm at Ohio University in Athens, Ohio. I've been here since 2013. Uh, when I got hired as the first occupant of the Drs. Raman Sushila Gawande Chair in Indian Religion and Philosophy, I'm currently an associate professor and the chair of the Department of Classics and World Religions, soon to be the Department of Classics and Religious Studies. I couldn't stand the name anymore. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I, my, you know, my main work has been on uh, medieval Indian religion, classical Indian religion, Indian epics, the Mahabharata, which is a massive Sanskrit epic. I've written now uh, two books about, and that's, and, and I teach most, a lot of stuff about India, um, of course, being, being my specialization, but I'm also really interested in the history of, of our discipline and intellectual history generally. So you know, I, I do a number of things, but I focus on, and you know, this is what confuses people. I am really an Indologist. So my, my specialty is Indian religion. Well, I'm a Russian historian, but now I run a podcast <laughs> network. So yeah. there you have it. Um, just Strange can't times. hold us down. So, uh, it's a pretty large leap from being an Indologist to Robert Eisler. H- how did you make that leap? Ah, yes, good question. Well, it all started in 2008 when I was a PhD student at the University of Chicago Divinity School. And I was dating a woman who was a PhD student in anthropology at the University of Michigan. So I spent several weekend, weekends, well, you know, a weekend a month or so in Ann Arbor. And I was in a bookstore there, killing time. And I found, and I was in the, I always go to the same sections. I go to the psychology section because I, I like to read about psychoanalysis. I go to the history section, the Asian history section, the religion section, and then that section that sometimes they call it uh, the occult. Sometimes they call it metaphysics frequently, 
but it's where you get the books about UFOs and ghosts and, uh, and astrology and vampires and werewolves. And I was in that section of this book, which was very small because this was a pretty serious antiquarian uh, bookstore. And I saw the paperback version of Man into Wolf, an anthropological interpretation of sadism, masochism, and lycanthropy. And this was a sort of beat up paperback with a very crudely drawn cover of a man turning into a wolf, but it looked like it had been drawn by a high schooler on a piece of notebook paper. <laughs> and it was only like $8. Everything else in there was $20 minimum. So I looked at it and I saw that it was, it was you know, you, you get the, t- the subject classification that publishers put on a book. And it says psychology slash occult slash anthropology. And I said, this is, this is a very strange looking book. And I started flipping through it and I realized that the actual book ends 30 pages in, and then there's 200 pages of footnotes and end notes. <laughs> and and I'll, so I'll look at the back and the author and, and talk and, and start reading a little about the author. And I say, I'm just going to, I'm going to pick this up and look at it and get it. And I'm going to take it home. And uh, I started looking through it and it was, a, it was very, it's a very weird book. I'll talk a little bit about it maybe um, later, but at the same time, uh, the, the, the woman I was dating was taking a class called non-canonical anthropology or something like that. But the point of the class was that, they, was that each student was supposed to pick out an overlooked or, or forgotten anthropologist from the past and look at their oeuvre. And so I think one of them was Paul Friedrich, who was a guy who wrote about a very famous book about, about um, um, life in Mexican villages and actually in, in working class rebellions in Mexico in the mid-century. But also he wrote several books about, about classical mythology, about Hera, uh, about, about Heracles and Aphrodite. So he was, he was kind of a strange guy with a lot of broad interest. And, and I thought this is an interesting idea for a class, you know, to talk about these people who we don't read anymore because they're not fashionable and we have to read so many other things. But at one point they were really influential and, you know, what happened between then and now is a, it's, it's probably worth asking. So that was in my head as I was looking at this book, and I thought, you know, is, is this is, is this an example of that? Because I saw that the guy had written other things, but they I was confused because the other things were about economics, about the Bible, and I thought maybe the name is not that that uncommon. There actually is another Robert Eisler who's an who's an economist uh, in, a, in a later period of history that sometimes gets confused with him. I thought maybe they're talking about more than one Robert Eisler writing all these things, but it's. It's one guy. And so I started doing some research on the author, and I was pointed to, uh, to the work of Gershom Sholem, Gershom Sholem's autobiographical work, a great scholar of Jewish mysticism. And he's really the only one who has much to say about Robert Eisler, and it's all in the form of very uh, ironic stories about a very strange character that he knew called Robert Eisler. So the guy is is basically a... Uh, a background character and a character of comic relief in Sholem's story of his more important relationship with Walter Benjamin. And so I, I said, this guy's, I've never heard of him, but only, but only people who have heard of him have heard what Sholem and Benjamin supposedly thought of him at the time, which was that he was kind of a crank. And so I decided to look into it some more. And whenever I told people what I was doing, you know, say, why, why are you doing that? You should be working on your dissertation. You should be trying to finish your degree. You should be looking for a job. 
And I was doing those things, but I kept on getting pulled back into the Eisler research, finding more books, trying to put together his, his story by looking at things he had written. And eventually, I decided to do a, a paper at the American Academy of Religions about him. I put together a panel called Non-Canonical Scholarship, and I got some uh, people I knew and didn't know. One of them was Jeff Kripal, who's now at Rice University, who is himself quite a character, who's gone from being a scholar of, of uh, Eastern Indian Tantra, of Bengali Tantra, to being a scholar of the paranormal, which is what he does now. And some others, too. And they talked about their favorite sort of non-canonical scholars. And they gave my paper on Eisler. And if I look at it now, this was 2010 in Atlanta. The paper was awful. It was, it was I badly misunderstood a lot of the things about his life. I was uh, flat out wrong on some points because I had read the wrong um, accounts. But it was a start. And people were you know, vaguely interested in, in the story. They were also, you know, more curious about why I was continuing to follow it up. But in the years after that, I, I never really let it go. I kept on um, amassing, I didn't know what I was going to do with it, but I kept on amassing more and more articles by him and references about him. And I finally located his archives in London, eventually made a trip out to London to look through them or in another trip. And I, I had all this stuff. I, I ended up, I had a friend who was um, an editor at the Jewish Quarterly Review. Again, I'm an endologist, but she was my teacher when I was an undergraduate. It was her first ever teaching gig in North Carolina. And I told her what I was working on. She said, well, if you want to publish a note in the book, in, in the journal, you know, you just have to send it in and we'll publish it as a note. It doesn't go through the same process because, uh, you know, I'm not, this is not my field. So I submitted this uh, note to the Jewish Quarterly Review and it was way too long. Uh, and Natalie Dorman, who was the editor there, told me that I had to, I had to cut it down if, if they were going to publish it as a note. So I did. Eventually, it was published as, uh, a, I don't know why I gave it this title, By Post or By Ghost, Ruminations on Visions and Epistolary Archives in 2017. And it's about Eisler's uh, psychoanalysis by mail of a man named Robert Whitehead who had a vision of Christ in the late 1920s. And so Eisler was not a psychoanalyst, but he practiced psychoanalysis, at least in this case. Uh, and, and it was, it was, and that combined that story with the story of his argument in the pages of the Jewish quarterly review with another scholar of Judaism, which Eisler also was. Uh, and, uh, and they put it together in a short piece. But I still had a lot more to say because I had to cut the thing down way, way smaller than I wanted it to be. And I was, of course, I had other books I was working on. I was still looking for a job. And it was it was several years after that that I met Roberto Colasso, who I had discovered years before at my advisor's house, uh, one of his books. And he's a really an amazing guy. He's He's an Italian publisher and author who is, he taught himself Sanskrit, but he also knows all the other, the other classical languages, as well as most modern European languages. He's a real polyglot, polymath, and he's written this 10-volume series that's a really an unclassifiable nonfiction history of uh, civilization through myth. It's pretty impressive. But I, uh, I met him in California long story there we'll get into. And we corresponded for a while. 
I, I, you know, I, he would ask me what I was, what I was up to in my scholarship. And I told him that I actually had, I just submitted this piece to Jewish quarterly review about a guy named Robert Eisler, who I'm sure he's never heard of. And then he wrote me back immediately and he said, you know, I can't believe you said that. Uh, no, no one's mentioned this name to me. I mean, this is basically what this is. I don't remember exactly what the email said, but no one's mentioned this name to me for years, but I've had the book man into wolf translated into Italian on my desk ready to publish. <laughs> and I haven't gotten around to writing an, uh, an introduction for it, but I want, it, it's going to be published in the series that he publishes of foundational texts. So I said, um, you're kidding. And he said, no, he said, will you, will you write the afterward? And I, and I said, I would. And so I took everything I had and put it into an, a lengthy afterward. It's like 60 pages long. It's longer, twice as long as the book itself. <laughs> and, uh, and I also found out at the time was shockingly that there was another trans Italian translation of man into wolf from 2011 that already existed. Wow. And I said, did you know about this? And he said, yeah, I know, but I don't care. We'll publish this anyway. He you know, he's, it's very, it's a very important publishing house. So I'm, I'm, you know, it was, I didn't get published there. Eisler did, but, uh, he, but he does what he wants. Adelphi. Uh, out of Milan. And so after that, I said, well, that's probably it. That's probably as far as it's going to go. You know, maybe somebody will in Italy will read this. It's published, it's translated into Italian. It's not translated into English. It's not, it's not published in English, which is where I wrote it in. And, uh, and then I, I, I guess it was around that time I started listening to a podcast with my wife while we were driving between North Carolina and Ohio. And it was called S town. And it was by the makers of cereal. Mm-hmm. And it was about a very unusual, eccentric uh, guy, a small town guy in Alabama who had all these really esoteric hobbies. And he was a fascinating guy. His story, his life story was truly bizarre. But a lot of it was filling him in on the things he was into, like clock making and astrolabes and this way of gelding, um, of, of, of gelding, of putting gold on gilding on stuff. So it, it's it's nothing I knew anything about or had any interest in learning about, but I was interested in it because it was in the context of a really fascinating life story. So I said, if they can make a guy from Alabama whose hobbies are things I'd never even heard of before I heard this podcast interesting to people, then maybe I can do that with Robert Eisler. I mean, the problem had always been that he wrote about economics, psychology, philology, archaeology, history of science, philosophy of science, monetary theory, um, and everything else. And I, I, I don't have time to become expert or even competent in a lot of those fields, in any of those fields. So I, I, how am I going to write a book about it? But I thought, you know, I could just get guests who were competent or better yet expert in those fields to talk about them and give context to his ideas. And, and so I told her about it and she said, all right, you know, I doubt this is going to happen, but, but, but good luck. And, uh, you know, she wasn't, she, it, it did sound like a crazy idea, but that's, that's what I thought was holding, that was really what was holding me back from doing anything else was, was the breadth of his work to understand his life. So I thought I could crowdsource this and get other people interested. And that's how the podcast came about. Mm-hmm. How did you decide, well, I mean, you've already explained why you decided not to write a book about Eisler and you decided to do a podcast. And I think it's a good forum for, it's a good medium for this kind of thing. I've listened to S-Town and it is about a completely fascinating character. That guy's just not like ordinary people. I recommend people listen to it. 
uh, I thought it was amazing, mostly because the guy was amazing. I forget his name, but uh, it, uh, it's it is, uh, John John B. They call him. Yeah, an truly, uh, it's like somebody you've never encountered. Um, and Eisler had to be a similar sort of figure. But one question I had is just in terms of finding people to talk about Eisler. He's a very obscure guy. How did you find people to talk about him? Well, what I I knew that it was going to be hard. I mean, I met Colasso. Colasso was the only guy I'd ever met who had ever thought seriously about him. Now, then I started, I found a, an, an article from 1981, which is the only article I ever found after Eisler's death that really talks about him besides a few brief references in the history of Christianity, because a lot of his ideas you sort of had to deal with because they were popular in the 1930s, at least for a while, if you were going to write about the history of Josephus, for instance. But anyway, um, I found a 1981 article about Man and a Wolf by a sociologist. And he had retired long ago, but I tracked him down and he's in, oh, where is he? He's in Philadelphia now. Uh, Marshall, uh, sorry, uh, no, his name's Greisman. And he uh, he's, I told him, I said, look, do you know anybody else? You did research on this in 1981. I said, do you know anybody else I should talk to? And he said, uh, no, but you just have to go find an archive and something will happen. That's he said. If you just find an archive, something will happen. And so I ended up, I went to London. I looked in the archive and, and you know, nothing was really happening. The people that knew about Eisler, they weren't showing up. So I thought, well, I got to tell people, you don't have to know about Eisler. You just know about economics, or you just know about the history of the Josephus, of the Slavonic Josephus, Flavius Josephus manuscript tradition, or you just know about the history of the gold standard in the United States, and I will fill in the parts about Eisler that, that relate to that topic. But, you know, still, when you say that to somebody, they, the first thing that comes out of their mouth, even if I preface it and then end it with, keep in mind, you don't have to know anything about Robert Eisler per se, just this topic. The response is always, I don't know anything about Robert Eisler. Sorry. Uh. So I got turned down by everybody. Uh, and I, I and I understand that because people don't want to get on and be recorded talking about something that they're not 100% comfortable with for yeah. lots of reasons. So that was a huge roadblock. So the people that did, the people that did get on, I am extremely grateful to. And then, you know, and I'm, I'm, they they really did an ex amazing job helping me out. Yeah, but you had to fill them in on who Eisler was, and I'm trying to sort of reconstruct these conversations in my head. I want to talk to you about monetary theory. By the way, there's this guy. <laughs> right. <laughs> what did you say to them? <laughs> well, so that's the, the first guy I ever interviewed for the podcast was Miles uh, Kimball. And he is a big deal economist. I mean, real big deal. Like he's all he's got all these videos of him talking to the Davos and everybody else and the white house, you know, back when there was a white house about, about, um, about inflation and deflation. And he started championing the ideas of Robert Eisen, which were completely discredited in his time. And I said, I wonder if this guy knows who he is or if he just found the reference. And I said, first of all, he's not going to talk to me, but miles Kimball said, sure. Call me tomorrow. And I talked to him. I recorded his interview and he only knew the bare bones of the idea about, 
about a dual currency model, which is really complicated, but it was part of the things that he was working on. So he said, yes, Eisner came up with this idea in the 1930s, and actually it works. It works even better now when you have digital currencies. And I said, well, did you know that Robert Eisler, you know, was was in Dachau and Buchenwald for 15 months? Uh, did you know that he went to prison for art theft or went to an asylum for art theft? And, so, and I said, no, I didn't know any of these things about him, but, you know, fascinating character. So people knew the tiny parts of his life. And I f- if they do something, then I filled in the rest. And then they were immediately, you know, they obviously it was unexpected information. So I, I just sort of started from what little they knew and tried to build out around it to give them enough to, to go on. Yeah. Yeah. I see. So tell me a little bit, I'm a historian, so I'm interested. Why is there a Robert Eisler archive and how did that come about? Oh yeah. Good question. So there's actually more than one, uh, it, it, the first one, the big one, is in London at the Varberg Institute, which was the uh, Varberg, uh, the 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 Wissenschaftliche Bibliothek Varberg in Hamburg that was moved there uh, during the war to escape yeah. the Nazis. And Varberg was someone who actually A.B. Varberg was an art historian and a really fascinating guy himself, a really troubled guy too. But Eisler spoke at the Varberg Institute back when it was in Hamburg, and he corresponded with the people there, uh, even though they did not get along. And some, uh, it's, they had the t- there was tension between them. Uh, but it's he must have respected A. B. Varberg, and he must have told his wife uh, that he did because first of all, he wanted to write A. B. Varberg's obituary when he died. And then he must have told his wife, or else I don't know why she would have done this, to give all my papers such as they are to the Varberg Institute. So, so, so after he died in 49, she gave, and actually years later, 57, I think it was, she gave, or maybe it was in two batches, she gave it all to them to be used as um, for research purposes. So she, I guess she didn't know what else. To, most, of, most of it had been destroyed, of course, or lost when he fled the Nazis. But what he did have, it was 15 boxes worth, and it ended up there because of her. And it's it's a very it's a very ambiguous um, uh, gift the way it's described. So that I had a lot of problems with it, and they had problems with it. But what could be used, and what couldn't, and how it could be used. But luckily, I had to track down Robert Eisler's closest living relative, which is his great nephew, who is in his late eighties and lives in Philadelphia, to um, revisit the paperwork and sign a new a new um, order about what the Varberg could do with this stuff. So that's why there's an archive because his wife decided to give it to the people that he wanted them. He had told, he had said throughout his life, he was going to give it to the, to Jerusalem, but he ended up giving it to A.B. Varberg. There's more at Oxford because uh, he was there toward the end of his life and working the stuff he was working on then, I guess they kept at the Bodleian library along with all the papers about him, which are a whole other thing. So it's obviously a fascinating story. I'm, I'm not going to ask you to describe his Lebenslauf in any sort of detail because it's it's too varied, really. And people should listen to the podcast to try to figure it out. Yeah, but, nine hours of it. Yeah, nine hours of it. Is there, in all of your encounters with these papers and reading about him and then talking to these area experts, what kind of person was Eisner? Did you get an impression of him as a personality and a figure? Can you say, well, he was kind of like this or kind of like that? Because the career is so unusual. I mean, I had to, I have to imagine that he lived in penury for much of his life because 
he was doing so many different things and a lot of them he made no money from. I, I just, I'm, I'm just interested in him as a character. Could you try to characterize what he was like? Well, yeah, you know, Marshall, I spent a lot of time trying to figure that out and I've had dreams where I've, I've met him and tried to get a night and tried to talk to him and figure out his whole, his whole personality in, in the dream. And I came away with no more than I had to begin with. Uh, I, he started out extremely wealthy. He was, um, he was a, born to a wealthy family and he died in poverty and yeah. really broken. So he went the whole, the whole, uh, the whole um, arc. Uh, and so uh, he, though, his personality seems to have been, he was very self-assured, very uh, confident in his abilities, but also uh, seemed to not, t- he seemed to not take himself serious. Sometimes he seemed to take himself so seriously that he was, he was a like, fragile and, and enraged when he was, when he was wounded or, or wronged by something. Other times he seemed to brush it off like it was nothing. Uh, and I think this was the way that he had to survive. Uh, when you, when you are what he was, which was a secular Jew in, um, in Austria, Hungary, who then married a Catholic and converted, uh, but was, you know, treated as a, uh, the conversion did not make any difference uh, in his life at all when when things uh, went bad. That he was sort of on the outside of all the identities that he sort of the intersected, and I think he had to come in there, guns blazing, get all the attention, and uh, and then get out. That's uh, he. He every time he made some major contribution or at least major intervention in a field, he jumped into another one. He always found the most pressing question of the day and tried to come up with a solution to it, which was um, highly counterintuitive and and almost combative. And and but he wouldn't he wouldn't stand. Um, I guess he also was fine being criticized. He said something really. This, this is I think is the key to his. This is the key to understanding him. And I found this in the archive at Varberg. It's a very it's it's a one sentence in a summary of correspondence between him and a great scholar of art and religion uh, named uh, Fritz Soxel. When Fritz Soxel says, "You know, a lot of the stuff in this book about Orpheus is actually been proven wrong by recent archaeology. We should go through and, and find those and update them." And uh, he's, I just wrote back and said, "Don't worry about it. I have the courage to err." Hmm. Or err, actually, err is the proper pronunciation. Yeah, I, I, I got you. Yeah, err. And and I thought, yeah, th- what does that even mean? Yeah. But I think that's I think that's what it that's what he was about, having yeah. the courage to err. Well, I mean, he seems to have gotten very fascinated and focused on topics which are uh, at the time I suspect were au courant. That is, that people people were interested in them, but then he drops them and moves to something else. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, so when when there was a new discovery, and this is a time also when. Archaeologists were discovering all sorts of things in the ancient, in, in the Near East from the ancient world. I mean, soon it would be the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, but but stuff was coming up and all the time. And he would so he would write a letter to a newspaper saying everybody should know about this new and brilliant discovery about X Y Z. He'd start writing a couple articles about it and work up to a book about it, start lecturing about it, and then move on to something else. So uh, when this when these, for example, when these. Uh, Manuscripts of Flavius Josephus's *The Jewish War*, written in the first century, a history of the mm-hmm. um, Jew- war with Rome, uh, the uprising. 
they were they, there were these Slavonic old old Russian related language that were tr- discovered in the 19th century and, and, and in the beginning of the 20th century were being translated into German. So people were seeing him in Germany for the first time, the German speaking world for the first time. And he jumped on it and he said, these new documents are, these give us not only the unedited version of the, of the Jewish war, which had famously been distorted by Christians for a long time to be a story about, about God punishing the Jews for their recalcitrance. Uh, was, you know, this was interpolated by later Christian authors. But he said, not only do we have a, a version that's free from all the Christian distortion, but we have a recreation of the physical description of Jesus by an eyewitness. <laughs> and then he, so he starts putting out in the newspapers and stuff. And this, this is the big, this is the thing that gets him a lot of attention. And it's not clear to me whether he, it's never clear whether he thinks, oh, I'm definitely right about this, or whether he says, I have to, I just have to get this out there. Yeah. If he has, if he's just having the courage to err again. But this, you know, his description of Jesus is is very provocative for the day and today. And you yeah. still hear people talking about it. You still find people talking about it on the internet. So like this is this is the kind of thing he did. He said, let's let's take this thing nobody's heard of, show it to them, and then take it to the farthest reach as a possibility what it can give us intellectually. What did people, I don't know if you can answer this question, but what did people around him think of him? Did he have close confidants and friends? Yeah, well, th- this is this is one of the things I really looked for. I scoured, I scoured the uh, archives for in every in every place else. So there's there's some stories, um, some stories sort of paint him as a person who was kind of an ironic figure, almost kind of a trickster figure. Like so, there's he lectured at Aranos for a while, which was a, at least once, which was a famous go- a gathering of um, psychoanalysts and scholars of religion that happened in um, I think it was Switzerland in this fancy chateau. Once a year, Carl Jung was a big part of it, Mircea Eliade, eventually Gershom Scholem. But the woman who started it, uh, she, she at first she thought Eisler was a great scholar. And in fact, and apparently he let, uh, one of her cats let Eisler witness her birthing a litter of kittens, which he thought was a great sign of Eisler's you know, brilliance, or Eisler's <laughs> importance. Yeah. But then she said, she later about Jung said, actually, I've changed my mind. I think he just argues things he knows is wrong to get a rise out of people. Uh-huh. And other people, though, like one of his guy identifies himself as a very close friend. A um, this is a banker in London, an Anglo-Jewish banker named um, uh, Goldsmith, anglicized from Goldschmidt. Uh, he he told Eisler as this as this really wonderful, giving person who didn't care whether he was going to get any anything back from his efforts was all about trying to teach and help people was um, generous to a fault was without any kind of uh, arrogance, uh, but also was a foe of superstition and ignorance. And so he's got a kind of heroic picture of Eisler, but the picture of Eisler that comes from his own writings uh, sort of towards the end of his life when things are really going South, somebody who is, who feels cornered and feels shut out. So I think that he, he acted, you know, I think he, 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 he acted different ways in different and different for different people to, um, to fit in the situation. I mean, he's known as the only person in the history of the Wissenschaftliche Bibliothek Warburg in Hamburg to get a standing ovation hmm. or uh, after, after he uh, spoke. And this is a place where 
know, the great scholars of Hamburg uh, come and give talks every week. So he could dazzle an audience, but he could also really piss off his uh, his fellow uh, sort of uh, his colleagues. It, it, it seems like a really complicated man. And, and, and I still don't know, but the big question, would I have liked to have known him? I don't know. <laughs> I was going to ask. Yeah. I don't know either. Yeah. He sounds like a, he sounds like quite the personality. <laughs> let's put it that way. Um, can you tell us a little about his personal life? Well, uh, so that's, that's kind of been kind of a mystery. I thought, you know, who doesn't, you know, who doesn't have kids in the 19, you know, somebody who's, right. who's married in, in 1907, but he didn't. And so he, I, I actually learned a lot about this from um, Stephen Beller, who is a, a really great scholar of of Vienna, the turn of the century Vienna and Jewish Vienna um, between the wars or up, up to um, up to the Nazis. And Eisler married a Catholic woman who is whose father had been ennobled recently uh, because because he was an artist. He was an important landscape artist. So he married into a, a line of a baronage and what Stephen Beller told me is that something like this would have happened when you had a an aristocratic, a titled family with not much money, but a Jewish family with a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that, that's you would see a match like this, and so um, he seems to have married her pretty early on. I thought that he, I, I, and then I thought, well, is there any scandals or anything like that? And you know, and uh, there's some stories about him having affairs. Some of them can't be credited. I mean, I, I some of them seem like misunderstandings. Other there's other things I've looked at that um, suggest that he th- he felt himself or he fancied himself kind of a um, a ladies' man, and had a you know when he was away from home sort of did did his thing. But that's only in one source, and it's hard to tell how much of that is is uh, is is a uh, you know. Uh, I don't know, made up. Uh, so he he was married to Lily for since night from 1907 on though, and she actually lived to 1980. She lived to be very old, and I I talked to the guy who was who who knew her when he was a kid, but uh, he he was he married this woman. He converted to Catholicism, but he was an agnostic. He always threatened to be converting back to Judaism so he could get published in Jewish journals, but he never did. Uh, and he 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 seemed to have. His friendships were complicated, like Gershom Sholem, who wrote about him a lot. He helped Gershom Sholem get started in the beginning. He helped Gershom Sholem become, he became the most important scholar of scholar of Jewish mysticism in the 20th century, hands down, if not the most important Jew, scholar of Jewish mysticism ever. And uh, Eisler published his first two books. Eisler found him when he was just barely graduated from, um, from school and they stayed in contact until really until Eisler's death, although with large gaps. And they uh, they had a they fought, you know, they fought about things a lot. Mm-hmm. It's in public and in private. And so, you know, when your oldest friend is somebody who frequently says disparaging things about you, and and vice versa, I mean, I think his relationships were combative. And I think he, I don't think he had. I mean, if he did, I don't know about them. So he had no children, and no. did he have relatives that survived? I mean, are there people? Were you able to find? I, I guess you said that he has a very distant relative that's still alive and lives in Philadelphia. Right. Well, on his own, his own, he had three brothers and sisters, and two of them that I found through ancestry searches 
seem to have died without issue. His brother, his younger brother, Otto, who uh, died in a concentration camp, was murdered in a concentration camp uh, near Minsk. And and that's all for the for the Eislers. Now, the other side of his family, uh, the Reitzes, his uh, his mother's side of the family, they I found some of their descendants. Uh, they were a wealthy Jewish banking family who made a lot of money investing in the railroads in the United States in the mid-19th century. And I've gotten some uh, material from their side of the family, but they didn't know much about Eisler. However, I tracked down a woman uh, named Rosalie Reagan, who was who has an archive near Philadelphia because she was she became a famous Quaker activist, but her uncle was Robert Eisler. She's the niece of mm. his of, of Willie Eisler, and her son, her oldest son Richard, is is still around, and Richard is the only person who's really related to him. Who's and of course it's only by marriage because he never had issue of his own. So I, I been, I've talked to Richard a lot, and I, he's a great guy. Uh, but he dug up a, a, a photocopy of a photocopy of a of the last picture probably ever taken of Eisler and his wife in the ni- in the nineteen forties in in England when they were living in exile, and he gave that gave that to me. He sent that to me a couple of weeks ago. So uh, he has th- that. That's that's it. Now, if there's something else sitting around in some in some attic, then uh, I don't know about it. But but that's 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 the American family. He stayed with them one time actually. He stayed with them one time when he was giving a talk to the uh, to the U.S. Senate about monetary policy. <laughs> right. Of yeah. course he was. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's in the congressional record. You can look it up. 1934 uh, gold standard. Uh, this was FDR was trying to figure out what to do with the gold standard, and so um, uh, he stayed with them once and. I don't think that I think they found him to be a little bit much. I mean, I can imagine if, as a house guest, him being a little bit much. Yeah, and that's that's what. But that, that's that's the only family that that I have that I found. Wow. Well, that's an amazing story, and I hope people listen to the podcast. I'm sure they will. Let's talk a little bit about the podcasting experience itself. Putting the thing together. Do you have any sort of general thoughts for people that might want to do podcast series like the ones you did on Robert Eisler? Well, I'd, I'd say this. So academic podcasting to me has a, a, a problem of, um, of of using old models to do new things. And so when, you, for example, Oxford Center for Hindu Studies, really important place where you could go and hear a lecture from about cutting edge research from the most important people in the field. And they have a podcast here that said, oh, wow, let me check it out. And, you know, no offense, because i have a lot of respect for these people, but they set an iPhone on a table in a yeah. lecture hall. And I said, this is not a podcast. I mean, you can, this is not a, you can, you can't really call it a podcast because when you look at what people have been able to do with podcasts, like S town, that, that was what got me. You know, I didn't, I'd, I've heard lectures on, re- on recorded before. I said, I don't need, that's not what inspired me to do the podcast. It's somebody who is using multimedia to tell a story. Yeah. Now, and this is the thing about, I think academic podcasts are missing is that we cite we cite people in our work. And, you know, for me, I was citing people who were experts in fields I was not expert in. I was relying on their expertise, which I do all the time anyway. We all do. Right. But I said, this is, this is a chance to have the expertise be part of the conversation rather than just a citation. You can have a conversation. And so instead of – so I read this book about Josephus, but I said, let me talk to the author of the book about Josephus, and I ask my specific questions and get them to think about something they didn't think of before. It can be so much better. Now, 
the, the, the obstacles for that are people committing their time. Um, and, and we, you know, you know this, Marshall. I know that once you've recorded a lot of stuff, you say, oh, well, this is great. And then you've got hours of editing ahead of you mm-hmm. and, and re-editing and listening. And so I had student help throughout the process. But really, I mean, it was so much. I had to do a lot of it myself um, because it just meant staying up late, going through finding the pops, finding the crackles. And because you really want it to, you, you really want it to work as a story, which means that it has to engross the listener. Um, it, it, it can't just sound like they're listening to somebody talking into a microphone. And so you have to commit time and money to it. And I think universities should have, if, if they want to get on top of this, they need to have some sort of a podcasting lab for their faculty to use with experienced and skilled people to translate their ideas into podcasts. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, I agree with everything you just said. I think the key word here is conversation and dialogue, because really what you're doing is talking to people about what they know. And of course, it doesn't have the same kind of polish or finish that something written has, but it's much, much more engaging. I mean, I can tell you this from having published thousands of podcasts and from having heard from thousands of listeners, that hearing somebody talk about their work, there's something special about that. There's something in our brain that picks that up and finds it very, very interesting just to hear somebody extemporize about some topic. It's kind of unfiltered in a way. And it, you know, they have to engage both their interlocutor and they have to engage the audience. And sometimes they'll say things that are sort of revealing a little bit off the cuff. And, you know, I always have a fallback here because I tell people about the interviews on the New Books Network this. I said, you're going to hear an expert talk about something they know everything about. But that's not the document of record. The document of record is their book. And if you want this person's last word on what they think about this, you should go to the book. This is for the purposes of your understanding, entertainment, and enlightenment. It's an entryway. It will get you to the point where you might want to go deep if you want to go deep. But you don't have to. You can enjoy this for what it is, which is too intelligent or more, you know, many intelligent people talking about something they know everything about. And with all of the full panoply of emotion and subtleties that the human voice can carry. And it's just a much richer experience than reading something. At least that's the way I feel about it. Um, I love hearing people talk about their research because you get that vast array of emotions and all the inflections and everything that comes from hearing a person go on and on about something they devoted a tremendous amount of time to. Uh, To me, it's a gift to be able to to do that. It is not like writing and it is not like a lecture. (laughs) It's a dialogue. It's a conversation. And that's what it should be taken as. It's extraordinarily valuable as a tool for, I guess, what we generically call outreach. Sure, that's true. But it's entertaining in its own right. No, I agree. And I think another sort of touchstone for me, and you know, I was never a huge, I, didn't, I wasn't, didn't get sucked into this like some people do, but I, I do remember that the, the Ken Burns documentaries, a, a documentary about something that happened in the past before you have documentary you know, footage to work with. Mm-hmm. And so you, what do you do? You cre- recreate the past with voice acting. Yeah. And that's another thing that that's a coming, that's coming back because of things like, you know, audible and all the, and the idea, you know, it was a big thing in radio, of course, having voice acting, but now you see people who's, you know, people here in our theater department, they make their money as voice actors. Yeah. And, and I, so I got one of them, I got some of them. And that's because lengthy, reading a lengthy quotation from a book 
really is uh, is a kind of starts to suck the air out of the room. So uh, when you find somebody who can read it, and especially if it's not a book, if it's a letter, you know, um, then you you it makes some drama, and it makes it actually makes you connect with the with the with a character. And and if you're telling a story about a person, then and something you have to connect them with a character. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you completely about the skill of a voice actor, because I listen to audiobooks all the time, and I have favorite voice actors. I, I, I will, <laughs> sure, the author probably comes first, but if I know that this particular voice actor did this book, I'm likely to listen to that book, because these people are very skilled at essentially enacting written prose. Uh, it's a remarkable skill. And, and I think, you know, academics, I, I don't know if they have it or not, but they certainly aren't trained to have it. Um, so engaging other people to do these kinds of things is a very good idea that I would definitely agree with. Um, let, let me ask you this. Are you going to do another one of these? Well, um, I, so there's a couple of ideas I've been toying with. And I, what I really want to do, first of all, is find out, is, is give people a chance to listen to this and see what kind of feedback I get. And then, and, and that's, I'm, I'm really interested to hear that. Uh, but if I do, and I, and I would, and I will probably do another one because I did enjoy it. I mean, as, as much work as it was, uh, there are some stories that I think are suited for the podcast, um, uh, to the podcast format. One of them is I actually wrote, I wrote an essay about this guy for a collection of, of, of but I think it could be a podcast. He's a, he was a uh, he was a scholar of Gothic literature in in Canada, uh, and in fact, he discovered uh, the, the book Varney the Vampire, which is seen as the the first vampire book and the most influential vampire um, book from the nineteenth century. Also, Carmilla, the first lesbian vampire book, which inspired a lot of movies in the twentieth century. But he was also a friend of Jawaharlal Nehru, and he was born in in what's now Nepal, really, or northeast India. Uh, and he fought for the British in World War II. He was a prisoner of war. Uh, he was a diplomat, he served in Syria during the time of the United Arab Republic, and knew Nasser, and knew uh, uh, Anwar Sadat, and then eventually ended up giving tours of Dracula's castle in Transylvania to undergraduates in the 1970s. So <laughs> this is, this guy, Devendra Varmo is his name. I said, this is, I said, well, how have I never heard of this guy before? Yeah, really. I said, this is, a, and, that, and that, so I found his family and I've talked to his family a lot and his parents, his, his children are still alive and, and, and cause he didn't die very long ago. Uh-huh. I thought about him and I thought about, there's another story about a guy. Um, I mean, a Romanian scholar who was, murdered under mysterious circumstances in the university of Chicago divinity school in the early eighties, uh, and an unsolved crime. But he was also, uh, one of the last sort of disciples of Mircea Eliade, who was, a there was sort of the big historian of religions in Chicago, yeah. if really in America. So his story is also pretty fascinating. There's a book about it. Um, but I think it could make a good podcast as well. So how have your colleagues received your, investment of time in this. I tried to put that as neutrally as possible. <laughs> right. Well, <laughs> you know, they say look, as long as long as we don't run out of supplies in the office and as long as, long as in our classrooms get assigned, then you know, do what you do what you want. Uh, it, there's there's been some um I usually I have to explain it a couple times before people figure out what I'm doing. And then they, they, then I see them pretending to understand and then leaving. Cause they just don't, 
it, it doesn't make a lot of sense the way I, <laughs> when I'm spending I, I, my time. I get that a lot. <laughs> <laughs> what, what are you doing in your office? Yeah. <laughs> Who are you talking to? Yeah, I get that a lot. Yeah, no, I, I know. Uh, I, I think that more of this is definitely coming. Um, I don't know how it's going to be enmeshed into the various institutions that pay many of us. Uh, but it seems hard to avoid the fact that more and more people are listening to these things and there's a greater and greater demand for them. So it's, it seems that they will have to be accommodated in some way. No, that's the thing. I mean, I, I, at first I thought, oh, who needs another podcast? But then I realized if you're a podcast listener, you get through a podcast pretty quickly and then you're out and then you go to the next podcast. Yeah. You know, so it's not like a books that pile up on your shelf. These things, they come and they go. Yeah. Uh, you, you, people, you, people really listen to them, but more likely they just keep moving through them. So yeah, the appetite is as big, if not bigger now than it was. Yeah, I think that that's exactly right. Well, we know the podcast listenership is growing tremendously. I know that on the New Books Network, our audience has essentially doubled in the last seven months. Jeez. Uh, and we don't do any promotion. So people are just finding us, which is, you know, it's obviously very gratifying because we, we do scholarly outreach. I, I would call it that. And it, it's nice to know that we're giving people something that they find entertaining and and educational. And I, I don't know where the bottom of the demand for this is because the New Books Network has just grown and grown since I started it a long time ago. And, and it's the, the rate at which people are listening to our podcast is increasing pretty dramatically. So uh, it's, it's a medium that I think people like a lot. People like to listen. They enjoy it. I don't think they like to read very much. <laughs> I always speak for myself. <laughs> I, I find it kind of difficult to read, but listening, I love it. I'll listen all day long. Um, so there's something kind of natively attractive about the podcast format. Um, is it scholarship? No, it's not scholarship, but it shouldn't be judged by that measure. At least that's what I feel. Is it a valuable tool in teaching and in you know outreach and 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 in sort of spreading understanding? Absolutely. I mean, it's better than pretty much anything we have. So I, I hope that more people do what you've done with Eisler. And I wish you obviously the, the best of luck on your next project. And we'll definitely put it on the New Books Network when it's done. And um, I just want to congratulate you on your work. I will say, uh, Marshall, two things before. The first you do a really valuable service. I mean, I'm the method and theory editor for religious studies review. And what I do is try to get people to turn around quickly, short reviews of new books so that scholars can look at those reviews and say, is this book something that I need for my need to sign for my next class or something right. I need to read for my next project. That's that can only be done either by reviewers working quickly or by something like I listen to Raj Balkaran's pop podcast regularly. Right. Yeah. And so uh, that, that, that does that service for me. It's, it's in, it, you have to have it. You know, they used to do it more quickly in newspapers and journals and stuff. They came out quicker. Now they don't come out as quickly. So you have to have this. Yeah. Well, I mean, we started doing, I, the new books network started with me interviewing a historian a week. That was 13 years ago. And so we produced essentially one episode a week and now we produce 10 a day. And I get solicitations from people who want to join the network to do exactly what you say every day. People contact me and say, can I be a host on the New Books Network? Because I want to help people keep up in the literature. And I want to talk to these people about their books because talking to people about books is the fun part. <laughs> I always tell the anecdote about how I went to graduate school because I wanted to talk to people about books. And then they asked me to write one. 
I was like, what? <laughs> it is, it's quite a thing when you realize you're sitting down to write a book. Yeah, like I have to write a book. <laughs> I just wanted to talk to people about books. So there is there is something nice about it. And I, I, I've, you know, the response that we've gotten on the network from people who want to be hosts is tremendous. And, you know, they're all volunteers. They do this. They enjoy it. Uh, you know, we do all the post-production and everything for them. We publicize them. We're happy to do that. And we've built, you know, an audience of hundreds of thousands. Um, and I think, you know, it just works in so many ways for so many people. And we can do turnaround. I mean, you know, we can we can turn a podcast around in, in a few days if somebody contacts us and say, you know, I have a book that's on the news. You know, can you get me on now? I'm like, actually, I can. <laughs> I can get your I can I can get you interviewed and out in two days. <laughs> you can't do that with a journal. Or right, a, no, we come out four times a year. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I, I, I love my journal, but that, that's, that's yeah. the fact. <laughs> yeah. So I would encourage anybody with books, you can definitely pitch me or if you want to be a host on the network, have at it. We'd love to have you and uh we'll set you up and and, and essentially give you a podcast. And, well this will uh, this will blow your mind. Actually, there is a there's now a book. A Barbara Dyser book that I wrote coming out in the next couple months. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. It's coming out on Paul Palgrave Pivot. So it's an expanded version of the Italian afterward that I, I wrote. I got it. Um it's it's about it's a it's it's a smaller one there. These are the they, they actually do a quick turnaround on these two. There's it's a fifty thousand word um sort of uh monograph, but it should be coming out uh, it's going into production this week. So well, I will read that and I'll have you on and we can talk more about Eisler. <laughs> Wouldn't that be weird? Because <laughs> we didn't get into like, all, I mean, we didn't even scratch the surface. I hate to use that metaphor, but like truly we didn't because no. the guy made contributions to so many fields that it's sort of astounding. I mean, <laughs> I'm pretty much a one trick pony. I wrote about Russian history. That was yeah. that was it. No, this guy, he did lots of things. So we'll definitely have you on when that comes out. Okay. All right. Well, Brian, again, let me thank you very much for being on the show. Thanks, Marshall. All right. Uh, and to everybody listening, thank you very much. Uh, we've been talking to Brian Collins about his podcast series on Robert Eisler called A Very Square Peg. You can find it on the New Books Network and on all of the podcast apps that you probably have on your phone. And I encourage you to listen to it. Take care. <laughs>